Hebrews chapter 2. We'll begin our passage today in verse 9. So Hebrews 2, verse 9 and following. And if you want to follow along on the screen, you're welcome to do that as well. We will be going verse by verse today through this passage. So you'll, if you've got your Bible open, keep it open for the, for the rest of the morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, as we look to your word that you have given us, breathed out by by your spirit, pray that same spirit in us would lead us to understanding. Lord, help us to understand why Jesus suffered today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the more I take the time to study each line of the Apostles' Creed as we've been doing for the past few weeks, that the more I realize how much I have missed out by not doing this sooner. This, This series... And the conversations I've had with Dustin and and Josh, this has forced me to learn new things about God's word. And and the the nice thing about that is is my temptation is to simply take what I already know about God's word and just kind of read back into God's word what I already know. And the Apostles' Creed forces me outside of that. And this week that has been especially true. Prior to this week, I had never thought much about Christ's suffering. I knew the incarnation was important. We studied that last week. And I knew Christ's death was important. I knew his resurrection was important. But his suffering, I just had not really thought much about. Until this week, as as I began to study Hebrews, until this week, I thought that the suffering of Jesus was just something that helped us to understand that he was human. Like like something that we're supposed to watch Mel Gibson's passion movie and, and sympathize with Jesus and kind of feel bad that he had to go through that. In fact, that was so much my preconceived notion about Christ's suffering that as I was Dividing, as I was planning this sermon early this week, so we're talking like Tuesday, I thought that I would be dividing this sermon into two sections. The first was sort of a recap on Christ's humanity and the fact of his suffering. And then I was going to talk more about Pilate and how he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And I was going to talk about the Roman Empire and how strange it is that that Christ allowed himself to be be killed by a worldly king. And the reason why I was doing it is because I had no idea of how important Christ's suffering is. And Hebrews 2 helped me a great deal. 
And friends, this morning we have in this passage wonderful evidence of how all the historic creeds of the faith are meant to drive us deeper into the word. The creeds don't stand alone. They point us to God's word. And that's exactly what we see this morning. It's what um, what we're going to see this morning in this text uh, is that just like we confessed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, we are going to see that it was necessary that Jesus suffered in order that he could be Messiah. All right, so and when I use the word necessary, I don't use that lightly. What we're going to see in Hebrews is that if Jesus had not endured suffering, he could not be our Savior. Or to put it another way, if Jesus, still truly man, truly God, so incarnate Son, we're talking about the same person we studied last week, if Jesus, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, if as a little baby, remember when when Herod tried to kill all the babies, if Jesus had died, he could not have atoned for our sins. He was killed as a little baby. Or or maybe if he was an eight-year-old boy and, and he was climbing on a tree and he fell and he hit his head and he died instantly, his death could not have atoned for our sins. Or even if as a 30 year old man, the week before he began his ministry, so he's still a carpenter, he's building a house, and a stone falls on him, and he's killed instantly, his death would not have counted for us. It wasn't simply who Jesus was, according to his nature, in and of himself, that made him Messiah for us. This is going to be new for a lot of us. This was new for me this week. It wasn't simply who he was when he walked, when he was a child, that made him Messiah. And it wasn't simply that that Jesus, truly man and truly God, died. It wasn't just that he died that made his death effective for us. Rather, it was what Jesus did through his life, in particular what he accomplished through his suffering that made him qualified to be our Messiah and to intercede on our behalf as our Savior. And so the question that we have to ask today is why did it have to be that way? Why did Jesus have to suffer in order to be our Messiah? And the point of this morning's sermon is just to answer that question. And as we work our way through this morning's text, we're going to uncover little by little more of how this mystery is answered for us, okay? So verse 9, look at verse 9, Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 9 introduces the idea, and then verses 10 through 18 expound on it. So let's look at verse 9. Here's verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now notice what the writer is saying here, Jesus was made lower than the angels. What's he say? What does that mean? It means he was human. This is incarnation language. He became man. That was last week. And then the next line shouldn't surprise us that much either, because I point to Philippians all the time. So, so let's look at the next line. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Very similar to Philippians 2. The Son of God humbles himself. That's what Paul tells us in Philippians 2. The Son of God humbles himself. He becomes a man, becomes a servant. And then look, Philippians 2, 8 through 9. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of his death on a cross, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So the name that is above every name is Messiah. God exalts Jesus, crowns him with glory. He makes him Messiah, king over all, because Jesus was obedient to the point of death on the cross, because Jesus because he suffered. This is the exact same thing we see in Hebrews 2, verse 9. Only Hebrews 2, verse 9, adds a little bit more. Look at verse 9 again. Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. We get that. So that, really important, so that 
by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Pause and think about this for a minute. The so that is referring back to the crowning. So he was crowned with glory and honor so that he might taste death for everyone. Now, he already died. Right? Wasn't his death for us? Wasn't Christ's death the moment that our sins were atoned for? And if you're thinking right now, is Dustin really about to deny substitutionary atonement? No, I'm not. Again, that's the Episcopalians. I'm not denying substitutionary atonement. We're examining what Hebrews teaches us about substitutionary atonement. The substitution, Christ substitute for our death. This is how it works. Hebrews shows us how it works. Here's the argument that Hebrews is presenting. When Jesus died on the cross, that was not the moment that our sins were forgiven. Through his suffering and death, Jesus was becoming qualified, or or we should say he was proving himself qualified for the office of Messiah, the high priestly king, and only through his being crowned with glory and honor as Messiah could he then dispense to us God's grace, the forgiveness of sins. And the rest of this passage explains why it is that way. All right? Don't take my word for it. This is just what Hebrews is going to show us. The rest of our passage explains this, and it will help us understand that the significance of Jesus' suffering. So let's look at verse 10. We have sort of our thesis from, from the writer to the Hebrews here. And now we're going to see him expound on it. Verse 10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many, bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So the first part of this argument that he's laying out is that it was fitting. Do you see that? It was fitting for God to do it this way. The the one for whom and by whom all things exist. Who's that? That's our triune God. And our writer is saying, it's just like God to do it this way. When, When God goes about redeeming his children, it's just like him that he would do it through the suffering of the Son. So the first clue in answering the question of why Jesus suffered is that God ordained it. That's a no-brainer. We should always, why did something happen? Because God ordained it. We believe in a sovereign God. One of the first things we learned here when we looked at the Apostles' Creed was that God is almighty, right? That tells us if something is happening that is bringing God's glory, it's because God ordained it. So why did Jesus have to suffer? Because God ordained it that way. It's fitting that God would do this. It's fitting, the text says, that God would bring about our salvation through what? Look at the the text. Through making the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. I, I could understand if he just said suffering. But he doesn't just say suffering. He says, make him perfect through suffering. Now, what in the world does that mean? Because wasn't Jesus already perfect? Right? Aren't you asking that question? Wasn't Jesus perfect? He was truly God, right? He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. How could there be any imperfections in Jesus? Well, the idea of being made perfect doesn't mean that he was imperfect. It doesn't, doesn't mean that he was being made morally perfect. He already was morally perfect. Later on, Hebrews is going to reemphasize that. Jesus was sinless. Tempted in every way, but without sin. Jesus was perfect in righteousness. And his moral perfection is not what being made perfect is, is talking about here. It has to do with him becoming Messiah. So, so one author puts it this way. He says, Christ being perfected is a vocational process by which he is made complete or fully equipped for the office. And by office, we mean the office of Messiah. Now that sounds weird, doesn't it? To say vocational process. But here's the thing, we need to think, uh, we need to see the life of Jesus as a whole and the temptation of Jesus and the suffering and the death of Jesus, the man, as proving 
his qualifications as Messiah. He was being made complete so that he would be Messiah. So think of it this way. Any of you have ever had on-the-job training? That's kind of what's being referred to here. You kind of get it if you've had on-the-job training. You were being made more qualified for the task that you would be doing. Depending on your vocation, depends on the training, right? So, so if you were in the military or you were in law enforcement, the training likely involved suffering. The more difficult the task you were assigned, the more difficult suffering you probably endured as you were being trained for that task. And it makes sense in those jobs, right? Because you, you know that something's going to happen on the battlefield or something's going to happen in the street and you need to be ready for it, you need to be prepared for it. But why should Jesus have to go through the type of suffering he did in order to be made complete for the office of Messiah? The office of Messiah is not an office of troublesome suffering, is it? Messiah isn't a cop. He's not a soldier. He's the king who is a priest. He's the king who intercedes before God on our behalf. Why should he have had to suffer to do that job? Why does suffering make him more complete, more qualified for that job? Verse 10 tells us because it's in God's character, he would ordain it this way. Verse 11 advances the argument a little further. We're going to get closer and closer to the answer here. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He's referring to Jesus here. Jesus is the one who sanctifies us. We understand that. We are those who are being sanctified. That is, Jesus is the one who makes us holy. Or as verse 10 says, he's the one who brings us to glory. And Jesus and those whom he is saving all have one source. That's what verse 11 is saying. He's saying here, we are all from God. Jesus in his humanity is is brought forth by God. In his divinity, the eternal son of God is eternally begotten of the Father. No matter how you look at it, Jesus is from God, whether you're looking in time or you're looking eternally, he's begotten from the Father, he's born. We as humans are also from God, aren't we? We are given life by God. And since we share in that origin, since we're from God with Jesus, Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers, brothers and sisters. And that still doesn't tell us why you to suffer. Does it? But it's a rung on the ladder. It's a, it's a premise leading to our conclusion. He is not ashamed to call us brothers, and that's a build-up to verse 12. Let's look at verse 12. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Now, this is where it gets interest, interesting. Right? So this isn't, Hebrews isn't one of the Gospels. Right? It's not Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not like a biography of Jesus' ministry where we read the things that Jesus said and hear the sermons that he preached. It's not what Hebrews is. And yet our author is quoting Jesus, quoting the Old Testament here. In particular, he's quoting Psalm 22. The way that we need to see this as Christians, the way we need to understand what's going on here is that the author is saying that the Old Testament so precisely foreshadows Christ's coming, that words spoken by David in Psalm 22, Psalm 22 is a psalm of David, were also spoken by Christ. And that makes sense when you see that the Holy Spirit was speaking through David. And the Holy Spirit's role is in pointing us to Christ. So let's look at Psalm 22, because that's what's being quoted here. Let's look at Psalm 22 to grasp what exactly the author is showing us about Jesus. Try to understand the argument. Psalm 22 is is one of those very messianic psalms. There's a lot that that we look to in Psalm 22 when we think about Jesus, especially uh, his crucifixion. You especially see that in the first couple verses. 
And we recognize that in those first couple of verses, Jesus, when he's on the cross, is quote Psalm 22. Quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is one of the primary Old Testament scriptures that early Christians and us today look to to show that Jesus had to die. But it's not only, Psalm 22 isn't only showing that Messiah had to die. Psalm 22 shows us, this is really important, in his suffering, Messiah trusted God. That's what Psalm 22 is going to show us. In his suffering, Messiah trusted God. This psalm begins this way. Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. That's how it begins, which is a a, a lamentation, a prayer of lamentation. And then verse 3, there's a contrast. You have the, the complaint, and then, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. So even in his suffering, Messiah trusts that God is holy and he is enthroned, he is sovereign over his suffering. And he trusts in God's care because he knows God has always been faithful. That's what verses 4 and 5 of Psalm 22 show us. In you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. See what he's getting? He wants to be delivered too. You've delivered before, Lord. Deliver me. So to you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So this psalm, the the way that that, the Hebrew writer, the, the writer of the Hebrews is trying to show us is that this psalm is a prayer. We see this as a prayer. It's a prayer of Christ. And he's praying, Lord, what I'm going through is difficult. Tremendously difficult. I'm suffering. And we're supposed to see this because Christ quoted Psalm 22 on the cross. We're reminded of the cross here. He suffered. And in his suffering, the psalmist, David, speaking the words of the future Christ, is saying, but I trust you. I trust you because you're trustworthy. And over and over again, throughout Psalm 22, you get the same refrain. Despite the suffering, despite the mocking, he says in verse 9, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you. See that? You made me trust you at my mother's breast. He's saying, I've always trusted you. In verses 12 through 21, things get worse. And, and, And Christ is recognizing there, in verses 12 through 21, that his suffering will certainly end in death. And yet, even in that, he's praying that God would rescue him. I know I'm going to die. They're piercing me. Rescue me. I know you'll rescue me. I trust you to rescue me. He trusts that God will rescue him from death. And in verse 22, this is the verse that is quoted here in our text in Hebrews. He proclaims this. He says, I will tell of your name, my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He knows he's dying. He's suffering to death. He knows that he will tell of God's faithfulness to the congregation, to the church. The praise of Messiah here is what he knows is on the other side of his suffering. The Lord has Delivered Messiah. He's seeing that it's, it's, so, it's such a, a given that God will deliver him that he says he's praising God. He proclaims his name to the brothers. Though Messiah suffered, he trusted God even to the moment before his death. Knowing that he was certain to die, he was confident, he had faith that God would be faithful. And having gone through suffering, all the way through death, He's now proclaiming God's faithfulness to the congregation, to the church. You see that? That's why Psalm 22 is quoted here. It's really important. Second reason, then, that Hebrews is saying Christ had to suffer. First reason was that it was God's ordained will. The second is this. He had to show that God was trustworthy. 
even in the midst of suffering. That's why verse 10, remember back in verse 10, it said he's the founder of our salvation. Some translations, if you're looking at the, the, the King James, it says he's the captain of our salvation. Some translations say he's the pioneer or the trailblazer of our salvation. He's the one who goes before us. Christ is the first one through the gauntlet. He's the one who shows us as an example that you really can endure suffering and trust God through it. And it's not just Psalm 22 that our writer points to, to to show us. He's also quoting Isaiah chapter 8. Now in Isaiah chapters 7 and 8, this is what's going on. God is promising Isaiah that he will deliver his people from their enemies. And he even gives King Ahaz, who's the king at the time, a sign to show that he is trustworthy. But God wants us to know he is trustworthy. Well, despite the sign, the king doesn't trust in the Lord, but Isaiah does. Because the signs that God gave were Isaiah's very own sons. So despite Isaiah's frustration with the king, the Lord reveals to Isaiah that he will be faithful to his people, but his faithfulness will not look the way that they would expect it. We get a future promise, a Messiah promise there in Isaiah 8 for another time to look at. So It's going to be important for next week's sermon. But in response to what the Lord had revealed to Isaiah there in Isaiah 7 and 8, the prophet responds this way. Look at Isaiah 8, verses 16 through 18. I'm going to put it on the screen for you. Isaiah says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. And that teaching is the promise of God's restoration. He says, I will wait for the Lord. King Ahaz isn't going to wait for the Lord. Isaiah is going to wait for the Lord. I will wait for the Lord, who's hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, here's our quote, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So those signs that Isaiah is talking about are his, his kids, his boys, his children. Jesus uses these words to speak of the children God has given him. So here we are in Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 13. This is Jesus speaking, and again, I will put my trust in him. There's, I will put my hope in him. Same thing that Isaiah had said. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Jesus is rephrasing Isaiah for the purposes of the gospel here. Messiah, in Hebrews 2, is using the words given to Isaiah through the Holy Spirit. And he's saying yet again, just like in Psalm 22, he's saying that he trusts in God's promises. He trusts in God's plan. He's saying that he will lead his children, God's children. Messiah will lead them. He's their pioneer. He's their forerunner. Messiah will lead them by example to trust in God's promises. Let me just summarize all that we just looked at. So Jesus became like us, like his brothers, like us. He became like us so that in his suffering, when he was tempted to forsake God, to deny God, to lose faith, when he was tempted, he wouldn't lose his faith. Jesus suffered and he remained holy and he remained sinless, and he remained trusting God the entire time, his whole life, all the way through the cross. And in doing that, he fulfilled Psalm 22. And in doing that, he fulfilled Isaiah 8. See more of this in verses 14 and 15 of our text. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death... He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. This answers our question. Why did Jesus share in flesh and blood? Why was he born of a woman? So that he could live as a man and really and truly trust in God from the time that he was at his mother's bosom, as Psalm 22 says, all the way through his life, through the temptation in the wilderness, through the scorn of the the Pharisees, through the people who turned away from him as as he made his way to Jerusalem, all the way through his life. We see that especially towards the end 
And we saw that in Jesus' life. We saw Jesus trusting God's sovereign plan, didn't we? All the way through. When the storm swamped the boat, what was Jesus doing? Sleeping like a baby because he trusted God. Jesus slept through the crashing waves because of his trust in God. Jesus went to Jerusalem. Then he told his disciples over and over again, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer. And they're going to crucify me and I'll be raised on the third day. He knew when he went to Jerusalem what awaited him there. He knew he would be tortured at the hands of Pilate's men. But he went anyway because he trusted God's plan. He submitted himself to the wrath of God for the sins of the world. He stayed on the cross because he trusted in God's plan. He trusted that God would raise him up. He trusted that God was faithful. Through suffering and through death, Jesus trusted God. And all the while, he was proving to the world and to you and me that God is faithful. That's ultimately what the resurrection is. Of the many things we could say about the resurrection, one of the things that that it, it certainly is, is proof that God is faithful to his promises. It's proof that God is trustworthy. It's proof that Jesus was right to trust God. Jesus willingly suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified because he knew on the third day he would be raised up. He knew that God was trustworthy. When was the last time that you were tempted to doubt God's faithfulness? I can almost guarantee that it was a trial, wasn't it? It was some time of suffering, whether it was physical suffering, emotional suffering. It was a time of suffering. It was a trial. It could have been a trial that involved your health. It could have been a trial that involved a job, a relationship, your family, your kids. It could have been money, finances. It could have been loneliness. Whatever it was, it was a trial and it was real suffering and you were tempted. And your temptation was to doubt God's faithfulness. Listen, when we are tempted to doubt God's faithfulness, we are tempted, that temptation is a temptation to turn from trusting him to trusting other things or other people or ourselves or our wealth. Some of us, in the face of that temptation, trust in our bank account more than we trust God or what we, we trust in what we wish our bank account looked like more than we trust God. Some of us trust the, 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 the excitement of, of momentary fulfillment that, that is found in pornography more than the trust of God's provision for a spouse, or for fulfillment in marriage. Some of us trust the government. I don't know why. But some of us trust the government and, and the perceived safety that government can provide more than we trust God. Whatever it is that that you turn to when you're suffering, when you're worried, when you're anxious, you're angry, or you're afraid, or you're sad, whatever suffering leads you to, if it isn't God's enduring faithfulness, then it's an idol. Whatever your suffering leads you to, if it isn't God's enduring faithfulness, then it's an idol. Jesus' suffering shows us this. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can face persecution. And we can face opposition. And we can face trials. And we can suffer. No matter how small that suffering is, or no matter how great that suffering is, no matter what it is, we can Trust God through it by the power of the Holy Spirit. The suffering that Christ endured proves that God will be faithful. We can trust that whatever we're enduring is not outside of his plan. It is a part of his plan and it's meant to lead us to him. That's why Jesus suffered. Jesus partook of flesh 
flesh breaks. And he, he partook of, of blood, and blood spills. He shared in our fragile humanity. He shared in our weakness to show God is faithful. He had to suffer. He had to suffer so that he could be an example to us of faith in the midst of suffering. But Jesus is more than that. He's more than an example. You were waiting for that, weren't you? (laughs) Jesus is more than an example. Jesus actually destroyed the power of Satan. Did you see that in the text? The one who holds the keys to our idolatry, dungeons, Did you see that in verses 14 and 15? Jesus actually liberated us from slavery to sin by destroying the devil's power. The reason why we typically, in our sin, turn to idols when we're suffering. Because in our sin nature, we cannot turn to God. Until we're born again into Christ and until we have the Holy Spirit, we can't do it. We can't turn to God all like sheep have gone astray, right, Isaiah? Romans 3, 10 through 11, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. We can't seek God on our own. When we come into this world, we are enslaved to sin. And sin's roots run deep. Deep down into who we are, sin is rooted in our fear of death, is what the the writer's showing us here. This is what the Holy Spirit's showing us. Sin is rooted in our fear of death. And because we can't trust God in our suffering on our own, Jesus paved the way as the captain of our salvation. Through his death, he destroyed the one who has enslaved us to sin, and he sent his spirit to empower us for obedience to God, to empower us to glorify God in our suffering. Paved the way, sent the Spirit, freed us from sin so that we could obey God and glorify God even in suffering. Now, what Jesus did not do is this. And I want you and I to be absolutely clear on this. Jesus did not remove suffering from our lives. Are you seeing that here? This is absolutely crucial to understanding the Christian life. It's absolutely crucial to understanding Christ's work for us. He didn't remove suffering. He suffered. Any religion claiming to be Christian that says that suffering is bad and if you're suffering it's because you don't have enough faith, any teacher who says that isn't, that that's, that's not just a misunderstanding of Christ's mission when they say that. That's a denial of Christ's mission. That is a message from the pit of hell. Suffering is not outside of God's plan. Suffering is the God-ordained path that led Christ to glory so that he could lead us to glory. And what this means practically is this. When we trust God in our suffering, we are not trusting that God will take away our suffering. We're trusting that he will be faithful in our suffering. Trusting God in our suffering means trusting that just as Christ was raised from the dead, when our suffering leads to death, we too will one day be raised from the dead. Jesus did not come to get rid of your pain. He did not come to get rid of sickness or persecution or oppression or even death. Not yet. Jesus came and made a way Through all of that, as the trailblazer of our faith, he cut the path through the steepest mountains and and through the thorniest thickets so that we could follow him through suffering, through death, to the other side, to resurrection. D.A. Carson is a a pastor, a theologian who I have really admired. Um, I've learned a lot from him. That was one of those top five teachers for me that has taught me a lot. Uh, I was listening to a lecture of his recently that he gave to pastors on the subject of suffering. And I just want to paraphrase a story from that lesson. I'm attributing it to him, okay? So just take note. 
want to paraphrase a story from, from that lesson that he gave. He told of a, a, a woman in his church who was very involved in the church. This is one of those servant leaders in the church. She's someone who everyone in the church had been helped by in some way or another. If you needed a meal, she brought you a meal. If you're in the hospital, she visited you. If there was a block party, she was, she was serving. She was one of those exemplary women of the faith who loves others through her Christ-like service who makes any church better with her being there. Well, you know where this is going. She was diagnosed with an aggressive cancer. It was pretty clear to everyone that short of some miracle, she was going to die. She was certain to die. Well, the church did what any good church would do. They had a prayer service for her. Everybody was there. Everybody was praying. And, and, and most people, most everyone was praying for her healing. That's what we do, right? Someone's suffering, we pray for their healing. And that's good. And that honors God. Because sometimes God heals. And he's absolutely glorified when he heals the sick. But in the midst of all those prayers for healing and people just pouring themselves out, begging God to heal this woman, one person got up from the church and prayed not for healing. This woman prayed that the sick woman would suffer well. She prayed that Christ would be magnified in this woman's suffering and glorified in this woman's death. And Dr. Carson says when, when that lady got up and prayed that prayer, everybody just, shh. Why? We don't normally pray that, do we? We don't feel like we're allowed to pray that, do we? Everybody knew that death was likely for this woman. Everybody knew that this lady, by no fault of her own, would, would likely leave her four young kids without a mama. But they thought that the right thing to do was to continue to hope for her healing. That's all they knew how to do. They had forgotten that Jesus suffered to show us how to suffer. They had forgotten that healing in this life is not our ultimate hope. Our hope is not even in this life. Our hope is in the resurrection. When Jesus walked the earth, we saw him heal, right? Well, he didn't heal so that we would have the expectation of healing in this life. He healed to prove that he was Messiah. And more importantly, he suffered as Messiah. And he was raised from the dead to show God's faithfulness through suffering and his faithfulness in death and through death. Listen. God has not promised us healing in this life. He has not promised the avoidance of suffering in this life. We can ask for healing. And he sometimes gives it. But we should not expect it. And we should know that at some point we're going to die. If anything 2020 taught us, we should know at some point we're going to die. And we need to take that lesson as Christians and be a people who say, but our hope is in Christ. Our expectation, sometimes it seems that our expectation is, is to live 500 years. That's not our expectation as Christians. Our expectation, our hope, is that when we die, we will be raised again. That is what is promised us. The hope of the resurrection is what allows us to endure suffering for the glory of God, because the hope of the resurrection takes away the fear of death. First Peter applies this well for us. First Peter 1, 3 through 7. A doxology from Peter here. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to a living hope through the resurrection. Is our living hope in the people that Jesus healed when he walked the earth? It's not. Our living hope is in the one who died and rose again. 
That's our hope. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, so, so our life now is a life of hope. And the, the fulfillment of that hope is waiting on the other side of Christ's return. It will not be fulfilled, our hope will not be fulfilled until Christ returns. And yet we hope. And he goes on, verse 6. In this you rejoice. We take joy here. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Do you see that in verse 6? Grieved by various trials. Suffering. And then verse 7 tells us why we have suffering. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, his return. So trials, suffering, those are the testing of our faith. Now let's look back to Hebrews. That's where Jesus was tested. In suffering, in trials. That's where Jesus was tempted And yet he endured through the trial, through the suffering. He trusted in God's faithfulness. And God was faithful. And Christ was resurrected. And through Christ, now we know it can be done. Now we know that we can endure trials following Christ. And when we do, when we in Christ, through Christ, have lived a life of faithfulness. Our lives then become a testimony to trusting Christ in trials. Our lives become a testimony to Christ's glory. Our lives are then for the praise and the glory and honor of Christ, as Peter says. That's Peter's application for us. And what we're seeing here in Hebrews 2. This is why Christ's suffering matters. Are you beginning to see it? Christ's suffering matters because Christ's suffering gives us Hope. Look back at Hebrews 2, verse 16. Surely it's not angels that he helps. He helps the offspring of Abraham. So Jesus became the offspring of Abraham, see that in Galatians, to help the offspring of Abraham. Now who are they? The language here, this is reminiscent of God through Moses taking Israel's hand, leading them out of slavery in Egypt. Jesus is our shepherd. He's the greater Moses, as Hebrews will show us in chapter 3. Jesus takes us by the hand. He leads us through suffering. He leads us through death. He takes away the sting of death. He takes away the fear of death because we're following him in his shadow. The good shepherd leads us through the very valley of the shadow of death and we follow him. In the same way that, that Moses led Abraham's offspring, so too does Christ. Only in Christ, that offspring is not a group of people related by lineage. Abraham's offspring in the new covenant, means we are related to Abraham by faith in Christ. We are the offspring of Abraham through faith in Christ. Jesus helps us. He leads us through the path of faithfulness in the midst of suffering. Look at verses 17 and 18. We get our finale here. Why did Jesus suffer? Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. Why did he suffer? Because he had to be. He had to suffer. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect means including suffering. He had to be made like weak, fragile, suffering humanity. So that he might become, see that? He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation For the sins of the people. So two final reasons that he's giving us here that Jesus had to suffer. He had to be able to identify with our suffering and endure our suffering and prove God's faithfulness so that when he ascended on high as our intercessor, as our high priest, he could intercede for us. Enduring suffering means that Jesus knows what's going through your heart and through your mind when you are tempted to doubt God's faithfulness. 
Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. Jesus, as our Messiah, as our great high priest, he can and he does sympathize with your temptation to doubt God's faithfulness. And recognizing what that temptation was like, he shows us mercy. Do you see that? He shows us mercy. And he intercedes for us before God. And in that, this is where it gets really cool, in that intercession for us, he makes propitiation for our sins. Big word. It doesn't mean, propitiation is an atoning sacrifice. It doesn't mean that he is up there before God continually making sacrifices before God. That's not what this means. It means that he is the once for all sacrifice. He is there before God as our example, as the one who would remain faithful. And he is there before God as our high priest who intercedes for us. And he is there before God as our sacrifice on our behalf. The once for all sacrifice for our sins. He is the ever present eternal reminder to God that our sins have been atoned for. And that's why we're forgiven. And that's why his suffering matters. But he could be none of those things were it not for his suffering under Pontius Pilate. Christ suffered to prove God's faithfulness so that you and I, in our suffering, would suffer for God's glory. Verse 18 is the summation of it all. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. I'm just going to close with this. If you you are ever tempted... If you are ever tempted to doubt God's faithfulness because you're going through some time of difficulty, remember this. In his love for you, in his mercy toward you, God sent Jesus to suffer, to show you what it looks like to be faithful in trials. And in seeing that example, When your faith is still weak, there's good news. Jesus' suffering has qualified him to be the one who will always and forever stand before God on your behalf to help you. To help you in your suffering. Amen? Let's pray and thank him. Let's praise him.